Welcome to The Segment, a Zero Trust Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Raghunanda Kumara, Head of Industry Solutions at Illumio, the Zero Trust Segmentation Company. Today, I'm joined by Gary Barlett, Federal Field CTO at Illumio. Gary is responsible for working with government agencies, contractors, and the broader federal ecosystem to help them meet their Zero Trust security objectives. Previously, Gary was a Federal Chief Information Officer and is also a retired Air Force Cyber Operations Officer with almost 30 years of experience in the military and in government. Today, Gary joins us to discuss his own personal experience with Zero Trust, top cyber challenges facing federal organizations, and why embracing an assumed breach approach to cybersecurity matters. Gary, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks, Raghu. I'm very excited to be here. Not as excited as I am to have this opportunity to speak to you, Gary. So you've been in the industry for for quite a while, and I'm sure you've seen a whole range of different sort of scenarios and experiences. Can you tell us what drew you to cybersecurity? Sure. Uh, So when I started my Air Force career, uh, it was, you know, early on in the world of networks for the Air Force. Um, And I actually spent the first half of my career not doing anything to do with networks. I really got uh, heavily invested about the second half of my career. But you have to understand, being in the Air Force, we were a prime target for adversaries, you know, especially nation state adversaries, very serious adversaries. So you quickly realize how critical true network security is, true enterprise security. And you realize that, you know, that is not just, oh, do you have updated antivirus on your laptop? You know, do you have a firewall turned on your laptop? Do you have a good password, right? You understand the complexity involved in trying to provide actual true enterprise level security. And I found that to be fascinating. And I found the the challenge of trying to kind of try to outsmart your adversaries um, and, and fight in a battle that was an everyday battle. You know, in the military, you know, not everyone finds himself in, in combat, right? So, you know, different skill sets find themselves more often than not in combat, some, some you know, very, very seldom. Uh, in cyberspace, you're in combat every day. And that's one of the things I've most enjoyed about, about my time doing this is you're in a fight and you're doing it every day. That's just, I mean, in my spare time, I geek out on infrastructure videos on YouTube, right? So I know it's kind of seen sort of the scale of infrastructure that the Air Force and the Armed Forces deploy. I mean, how do you go about securing a network that is that fast and that diverse? Like, how, how do you even go about designing that? So um, it's got its challenges. I'm not going to lie, right? It's it's one thing to think about doing it in small pieces. You have to try to identify, you know, where where are you going to focus your resources? You know, that's one thing about being in cybersecurity. You never have enough resources to to do everything, right? You you've always got a to do list that's longer than uh, you could possibly ever hope to accomplish, and you're constantly reprioritizing that to do list. Um, so the reality is, you 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 look at things. You, you know, you do your risk management, right? What are your highest threats? What's the impact of, of, you know, if there is a compromise, you know, what's going to have the highest impact? And you really try to focus your efforts on protecting those things uh, and trying to lock down the things that you think you can lock down. And the last thing is you spend a lot of sleepless nights. You don't sleep very well most nights uh, as a result of it. I completely agree. So, right, in your experience, and of course, we haven't even spoken about your experience at the Postal Service. um, When did you first come across the term zero trust? So the first time I came across the term zero trust was probably, I don't know, five years ago, five, six years ago, maybe. I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's interesting, right? At, you know, the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, here we go. It's another rebranding, right? You know, you know how the IT world is, right? We rebrand stuff, you know, what's, what's old again is new again, and we just rebrand things. 
So when I first heard the term zero trust, I was like, yeah, here we go. And honestly, part of the reason why I felt that way is some of the very first things that were highlighted in zero trust when they talked about, you know, identity and, and knowing who's accessing what, right? You know, in the military, we've been talking about that for a long time. So at first, it felt like a rebranding. And then when you really start to delve into what's really at the heart of zero trust, you really start to understand it really is a, a different way of, of looking at things in a different mindset. Um, especially when you really get to the heart of it and, and talk about the mindset of assume breach, right? And assume that, you know, you're never going to completely win the battle of, of stopping a breach. But what you can do is try to minimize the impact of that breach. So actually, uh, what, what you just said, that there's something really interesting that I want to kind of delve into a bit more. So you said that you kind of were one of those people who, when you first came across Zero Trust, you thought, this is just like marketing hype, right? And in fact, there are probably still people today that say that zero trust is just marketing hype. And But then uh, what, what was interesting was you said you looked into it and you realized that this was actually, it wasn't sort of like new clothes on the same problem. There was actually a completely different way of approaching the problem of how we secure enterprise, enterprise networks and enterprise organizations. Like what made you see this as a different approach? Like what, what was the difference that you saw that it brought? So it was funny, right? So I had always had conversations um, just kind of generically, right? My time in the Air Force, my time as a federal CIO about, you know, the, the, the fact that you just can't always win, right? You, you're going to lose and had always had this idea of, you know, okay, what if, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to respond if we lose? And then, like I said, as I started to really understand Zero Trust a little bit and think about that shift in mindset, you know, it wasn't just a shift in mindset for me, but a shift in mindset for the people that I had working for me, the way that we approach problems. I always had this philosophy of 80% is good enough, you know, and, and that comes down to anytime you try to deploy something or you try to do something, that pursuit of perfection is impossible, right? And Zero Trust kind of, I think, really kind of gets to the heart of, look, you want to continue to try to do your best, but there's no such thing as perfect. And you have to be ready for the alternative, right? What happens when the, when the, the art of the perfect fails you and, you and you have to deal with a breach? And I think that that's, you know, kind of that, that, that monumental shift in approach and philosophy is something that I think that modern entities, uh, agencies and businesses, if they don't make that shift, they're just going to continue to lose. Right. And uh, that, that's such a great way of, of kind of, of framing it, right? It's that don't, essentially, it's, I think what you're saying is don't let perfect be the enemy of good, right? And kind of take that forward-looking approach, because you also mentioned this term, assume breach. For the listeners, like, what is what do you mean by assume breach? So if you look at, I mean, there's been all sorts of reports released recently that, you know, uh, you know the, the, the popular topic today is, is, uh, ransomware, right? Uh, and there's been there's been recent studies released that say, you know, something like 76% of organizations have have um, been impacted by some sort of ransomware attack. Um, well, if our defenses were so great, then why is ransomware even a conversation, right? Why are we even talking about ransomware? But here's the reality, right? You look at the antivirus market. For decades, the antivirus market has said, if you just buy our product, we will stop viruses and, you know, dead in their tracks. Never happens, right? Constantly getting, you know, uh, infected, constantly dealing with that kind of stuff. And, and you know, mal all sorts of types of malware. So here's the reality. It's just a ongoing battle that's impossible to stop and win 100% of the time, right? So the question is, right, we, we were able to make, you know, a lot of people were able to make the shift of, okay, look, I know I've got updated antivirus, but I need backups, Right? I need to back up my information because if this stuff gets infected, how do I recover from an infection? Oh, I'll restore from backup. But 
what do we do about breaches, right? And that's where I think a lot of agencies are still lagging is understanding it's going to happen, right? At some point, it's going to happen. There was a, so, you know, following that mindset, you just have to assume that at some point, something's going to happen. We're all human, right? Networks are run by humans. And that's, I think, that, that people lose sight of the fact that networks are run by humans. Humans make mistakes. And those mistakes are going to be capitalized on. And you have to be prepared to, to deal with what happens when those mistakes are capitalized on. So I think what you're saying is that it's absolutely okay to to take that approach of the assumption that something unexpected is going to happen. Is that is that a good way of stating it? Absolutely. Um, and I'll tell you, that is a hard thing, especially for people that have grown up in traditional IT to make that shift, right? Because basically what you're saying is, I'm telling you right up front, I'm, at some point I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail in the job you've given me, which is to defend the enterprise that you've entrusted me with. At some point, I'm going to fail. And now the question is, what am I going to do about it when I fail? A lot of people don't want to admit that they're going to fail. You know, and, and it's, it's, again, it's going to happen. So you might as well accept the fact that it's going to happen and then have your contingency plans in place of what am I going to do about it when, not if, but when it happens. No, and I think, I think that's right. It's like essentially assume the unexpected. And then if you start with that, then essentially, what would you do to ensure that that unexpected event has the least negative impacts possible? And that's and that's the key, right? So, you know, some people think about the fact that, okay, you know, something bad happened. Um, that's the failure. In my mind, it's always been something bad has happened. What was the impact, right? What did it do to my operations? What, you know, how, how widespread was the impact? You know, you know, how much did my customers feel? You know, because quite honestly, if the customers don't feel something and it's just something on the back end that you're dealing with, but the customers don't feel it, that's a win. If the customers don't notice the impact, that's that's one of the biggest wins you can have, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so so let's let's go from there, right? So we've kind of understood how you got bought into that sort of the concept of zero trust, right? So can you now tell us a bit about how you then actually put that into practice? Maybe some of the projects that you helped pilot and spearhead where you took this approach in the public sector? I was involved with deploying uh, cat cards in the military. Uh, you know, and the cat card is the physical card that you have to put in, right? It was the, the widespread, widespread implementation of two-factor authentication in the military. You know, and that's, you know, having that, that, you know, secure identity, right? So every one of us had a card, had a certificate on it that was tied to us as an individual, right? Being able to, to lock down and try to zero in on that identity piece of it, right? And then we capitalized on those identity pieces throughout systems, throughout the entire military of, you know, okay, now that we know that this is, this is supposed to be Gary because it's the physical card that's in his hand, he has entered the pin that only he knows, now we have a certificate-based authentication that we can, uh, with with some level of assurity, say this is Gary. Now we can use that for accessing systems across the military. Right? So that was, you know, in, in today's world, you know, that scene is zero trust. Again, it really wasn't called zero trust when we were doing those things. Uh, but that, you know, that kind of approach, I think, is is critical when you're thinking about these things. Um, and then, you know, projects of, you know, migrating to the cloud and trying to adopt the security mechanisms that, that, that the cloud can bring to you, right? Um, and especially when we started getting into things like uh, doing uh, assessments of where people are logging in from, right? Looking at Comply to Connect on the, on the desk, on, on uh, laptops. We, when I, I was involved in a project of, of deploying to Comply to Connect, where we looked very hard at what was the state of the device that someone was trying to use to access the, the enterprise? And then what did we do based on that state of that endpoint? You know, so there, you know, there's just a couple of examples of, of projects that, again, 
were they necessarily called zero stress at the time? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, uh, depending on the on the timing of the project. But um, from a from a perspective of trying to implement some of the the main tenets of zero trust, we attempted it. I will tell you, we attempted. I was with Nancy. We attempted a very large uh, implementation of 802.1x and uh, dynamic VLANs to try to do segmentation. And I will tell you, it was not very successful. You know, sometimes you, sometimes you try something and it just doesn't work. Uh, it was not, it was, that was that was one of those uh, projects that was not a successful implementation of trying to do a zero trust uh, implementation for me. Yeah, and I think that, that's a really good, interesting thing because I, I think the sometimes the challenge, particularly with something like segmentation, it, it's not that segmentation and whatever you want to prefix that with, right? Network segmentation, macro, micro, et cetera. That's been something that us as network security professionals have been wanting to do since, I'm going to say, time immemorial. But just the technology to allow us to do that at the scale of today's enterprise networks has only just essentially become available and truly usable, right? Which is why like we we still see lots and lots of flat networks. It's because organizations are still catching up, right? Is that essentially the challenge you ran into? Absolutely. I mean, just when you're trying to do something like a segmentation project at scale, right, you run into a couple of main main obstacles. Number one is just sheer volume, right? If you're really going to do it properly, you got to really implement it with, you know, every major device that's on your enterprise. And if you've got a large enterprise, right, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of IP addresses you're trying to keep track of, right? And then just the sheer dynamics of an enterprise, right? Especially as you've gotten into the the world of virtual machines and, you know, rapidly spinning things up in the cloud and, and you know, multi-cloud environments and just that complexity that gets involved, you know, so now you you magnify your problem of you're not just trying to keep track of, of all these instances of things, all these different IPs, but they're in all these different locations, right? And how are you supposed to keep track of all that stuff, right? And and then throw on top of that, you've got most places have a very limited IT staff for all the work that they've got to do, you know, just their day-to-day job of trying to keep things running. And then you try to try to apply something like this on top of it and go, hey, you know, I'm going to pick you. It's your job to make sure anytime something new joins the enterprise, you've got to figure out all the hundreds of places you've got to go update so that that thing connects in the way it's supposed to connect but doesn't cross boundaries it's not supposed to cross. I mean, that's a, that's an impossible challenge to give someone. Yeah, oh, c- c- completely, right? Which is why you then, I think, the, the, uh, what is sort of the, uh, the fallback is, well, then it's like, well, well, what compensated controls do I have? Or more often than not, am I okay just to accept this risk and move forward? And that often is kind of what we land on, right? Is that we just add it to the risk register and say, yeah, I know about that. And and that's and that's the funny thing, right? That's what that's what usually ends up happening, right? Is you get people that go, okay, you know, what is it going to take for me to try to mitigate this risk? Oh, well, if I triple the size of my IT staff and I triple my IT budget, right, then maybe I might be able to mitigate it to some extent, right? And the decision makers are like, yeah, where do I sign? Because I can't, you know, that's a that's an impossible investment for you to make. Um, where do I sign? You know, what's going to be the impact if I don't do this? And they, you know, people hem and haul a little bit, and and then whoever's responsible says, I'm going to sign off on. This. This because there is no way, you know, Mr. CIO, I'm going to triple your staff and triple your budget to do this thing that I honestly am struggling to understand anyway, because what I expect you to do is keep my enterprise, you know, encircled with this nice layer of defense and anything inside should be safe. So why, why am I stroking this check for you? So do you think 
that we are now at a place, whether this is in the Fed space or in general enterprise, where we've gone too much towards risk acceptance and the importance of risk mitigation has kind of been put to the side. Yeah, actually, that's an that's a interesting question because I think the answer is yes. I think that we have gotten to a point where you know, it used to be, right, the opposite problem, right? We didn't want to assume any risk. We wanted to mitigate everything, right? And then as that kind of got beat into people's heads that that's a ridiculous approach, that's an impossible uh, uh, goal to achieve, people started kind of loosening the, the throttles a little bit, um, loosening the shackles a little bit, and found themselves, I think, to the point where now there's almost no controls in place, right? And people are saying, hey, as long as it's about getting the job done, yeah, we don't care if you let, you know, personal devices into the enterprise. And because it's all about keeping the, you know, the, the, you hear a lot about, you know, well, how do we, you know, attract younger talent? And younger talent's not used to being constrained, you know, so we got to do things to, to make sure that we're not constraining the, the talent that we're trying to hire. Uh, so now all of a sudden you've gone to, oh, I'm just going to accept all the risk. Um, and kind of cross my fingers and close my eyes and really hope nothing bad happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 when something bad does happen, what I hope is that they don't go and look at the risk register and say, did we really accept this risk? And and why and who and et cetera. Let's come back to sort of the federal government and security challenges that they face and like why they're adopting zero trust. Right. So we we always seen this 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 is a big push in the in the US federal space. Um firstly like what are the challenges? What are the security challenges that the federal government faces today? And why do they need to adopt zero trust? Sure. So some of the challenges that they face. Number one, in this a lot of this is similar to what you're gonna hear, you know, what you would hear if you ask the same question about private sectors, right? But in the federal space, money, people, and then flexibility to, to get things done, right? So you start with the fact that they're constantly dealing with, with the federal budgeting cycle. How much money are they being allocated? And oh, by the way, people don't realize how far in advance you're working your budget for, from a federal perspective, right? It's not a matter of, you know, hey, it's, you know, it's July and my, the next budget year starts October 1st. Here's how much money I want. Ah, you've made those decisions years ago about how much money you need for a given fiscal year, right? So you're trying to forecast into the future from a budgetary perspective, and they don't, you know, the 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 federal budget system isn't a lot, isn't designed to say, oh, well, feel free to ask for a couple million dollars, you know, that you can't explain what you're going to spend it on. Feel free to just ask for, you know, surplus cash just in case something comes up in the future, you know. So that's a that that whole cycle is 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 a challenge, uh, you know, for the federal government. And then just getting the right resources. When you look at the the landscape across the around the globally, you know the shortage of IT staff and the shortage of IT expertise. And especially when you start getting into security, right? That's a very, that's a smaller piece of, of the IT problem. Um, how does the federal government compete for those resources? If you're a young whiz at IT security and you look and go, where am I going to go work? Do I want to go work at the federal government? I'm going to be a GS whatever. It's usually a, a, a lower GS rank rating, making, you know, forty fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. Or do I want to go work at, some company somewhere making $140,000, $150,000 a year. You know, and the federal government's got to figure out a way to try to attract that person to come work in the government and not go work for, you know, one of the 10,000 openings in their home state, you know, necess- you know, not even worrying about, you know, teleworking anywhere in the world. But, you know, if they, if they you know, that is a, that is a huge challenge for, uh, for the federal government. Um, and then the, the, the kind of the mindset, right? Trying to get, hold people accountable, 
right? So when you know when you need to make shifts and you need to make changes in the federal government, trying to hold people accountable to make those changes can be a challenge in the government, right? It's it's you know there's uh, it's very hard to fire people, and you know so if somebody's not doing a good job, you spend a lot of time trying to kind of bring them along before you can get rid of them. So and and while that process is going on, they're filling a seat, supposed to be fulfilling a responsibility. Uh, and if that happens to be one of the key positions to protect your enterprise and the person's not not cutting it, it can take a long time to get rid of that person. And now you're back to the challenge of how do you backfill that seat again? Yeah. And so that, that, that then brings me to a to a question. So obviously, there's been a the huge push in those President Biden's executive order last year that sort of really accelerated the adoption of uh, of zero trust security approach amongst federal agencies. So you kind of talked about essentially a large people problem that that federal agencies face. Given that, do you think the adoption of zero trust and actually following through with this this EO is going to be realistic? Um, I think it'll, I hope it'll eventually be realistic. It is not going to be a realist. It's not going to be realized in a short period of time. You know, so when the executive order came out, here we go, right? Here comes another mandate from on high that's telling all these federal agencies it's something they got to go do, and there's no money to, to, that comes with it to go do it. IPv6 is a perfect example. I lost track of how long ago the federal government was supposed to be migrated to IPv6. Most agencies don't even know how to spell IPv6, much less have they implemented IPv6. And that was a, and that was a federal mandate ages ago. Now, I think where Zero Trust has a has a better chance at success is I think there's a much more recognized need uh, for implementing the, the principles of Zero Trust than there is, say, you know, than against something like IPv6, right? Um, so I think those some of the, the founding tenets and the core tenets of Zero Trust, um, I think, resonate with people and they understand going back to that, hey, you know, I realize that we have probably accepted a little bit too much risk and we have got to figure out a way to kind of minimize that that risk structure that we've got in place here. And I think zero trust brings some of that to, to the forefront for agencies. I think just go the IPv6 comment, I think if, if anyone who's worked in networking or network security over the last 20 years, everyone has their own little funny IPv6 story, right? And in my case, it was at a former employer. I think there was this thing called World IPv6 Day, probably about a decade ago. And we were all participating in it. And what did we have to do for that day? It's just that for that one day, for that one moment, show that our external facing website could be accessed via IPv6, right? Just, just, just for that one moment, and 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 after that, everyone we're back on IPv4, everyone. <laughs> but so, like, okay, so you see, you say that like zero trust because of the importance of it to just the sort of the resiliency and the cybersecurity of federal agencies at large and the criticality of it, this is one that is going to get the traction. It's not going to be another sort of IPv6 to say that, right? When I look at the mandate, and I kind of, on one side, as a zero trust practitioner, I'm excited about it, right? So finally, we've got like a government agency and that too, the US government sort of mandating this. And this can only be good for both the public sector in other countries globally, but also then that trickling into the private sector. But on the other side, I kind of look at the the timeline that has been laid out. And a part of me thinks that it's not aggressive enough, right? We're getting to the real sort of risk reduction pieces, right? Far too f- far down the line. And why can't those be brought in sooner? Am I just being kind of just too greedy here? And this is a good thing and we should get on the train and let sort of let that timeline map itself out? 
So I think that, I, you know, I would love to made, wave a magic wand and have it done much faster. Having spent so much time in government, I will tell you the timelines that have been laid out are fairly aggressive for the government. And, and it is, right? And again, I go back to, you know, again, the whole budgeting conversation, right? And the fact that you're budgeting multi, you know, multi-years in advance, um, the procurement process, right? And keep in mind, and this is one thing that I think some people lose sight of, federal agencies operate under the laws that have been passed by Congress, right? So the restrictions that they have, you know, people ask, why does it take the government so long to buy something? Well, I'll tell you why, because there are so many rules in place to ensure fair competition, to ensure that you try to avoid single sourcing and, and you know, getting vendor lock. So there's all these different things there, and, and they all are very justifiable checks and balances to have put in place. But the ramifications of some of those checks and balances makes it very difficult for agencies to do procurement and can really drag out timelines, right? So it's not a matter of, hey, let's just whip out your credit card and go buy something today and, you know, pick whoever you want. That doesn't work in the federal government. Private private entities can, for the most part, go buy what they want from whomever they want, whenever they want, right? The federal government and the DOD, they don't have that, that kind of luxury. So that in of itself automatically adds a huge amount of time to a timeline to try to implement something just because of the sheer amount of rules that have to be followed and the checks and balances and dealing with, you know, people protesting, right? You get a, you do a major award, you get one protest, you know, you, you may have just increased your, your procurement timeline by 50 or hundred percent. So, okay. Right. Um, so then like, how do you think organized uh, federal agencies are going to be held accountable, right? Such that they are, tracking against this plan and delivering against it. And I, and I, and I understand, right, that this is what these are government agencies, right? Things take their own time. But like, how is that going to be? How is the sort of the accountability going to be enforced? So the accountability piece is the piece that I worry about the most, because in, you know, if history is, is any judge and anything to measure by, accountability is always one of the things that doesn't seem to take effect when these kinds of things come down the, the pipe, you can see in a, in a, uh, you know, in a, in a different setting, like in a private sector, you know, company, if, if you told somebody, Ragu, I've given you a deadline, I expect you to meet that deadline. And if you don't meet that deadline, there's a pretty good chance they're going to go, thanks for your service, you can leave now. Uh, and I'm going to try to bring somebody in that can, the next time I give them a deadline, we'll meet that deadline. In the government, most people don't get fired because they didn't meet a deadline, right? They didn't meet a mandate. You know, they don't, that's, that's not why they get fired, right? And, and it's unfortunate that sometimes some of these, and I'm not saying zero trust is one of these, but, you know, sometimes mandates come down and it's really just about checking a box, you know, so that somebody can say, hey, we did something. And then there's, you know, hey, what's the next thing, right? What's the next shiny object we're going to go chase? And, and nobody ever bothers to look backwards. That's of all of the, of all the things that, that affect zero trust, it's that accountability, right? Because really it's going to be up to the agencies to hold themselves accountable. And probably the closest thing to accountability will be most federal agencies have a uh, office of inspector general. This is something close to my heart since that's where I come from. They'll go in and they'll write audits and say, hey, federal agency, you were supposed to do X by this time. You know, we're going to write you up. You haven't done that, right? And then that'll get, that'll get published. That could get observed by, you know, noticed by Congress. Congress may ask the, the head of the federal agency, hey, I've got a report in my hand that says, you're, you know, we, Congress, the president, told you to do something by a certain timeline. You didn't do it. What are you going to do about it? And, and you know, their answer may be, well, we're sorry, we're going to go do it today. Or, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see uh, what the write-up looks like two years from now when we get re-looked at again. 
Yeah, well, who doesn't love an audit or being on C-SPAN? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think, I mean, personally, I think there's lots that other uh, other governments globally can learn from sort of the, the, the US's sort of uh, approach to adopting zero trust. But kind of moving away from the public sector, what do you think the lessons are for the for the private sector? Right. And, you know, we don't need to take it as the private sector at large, but maybe specific verticals within the private sector. What can they learn from the sort of the, the approach that the federal government is taking? So I think that, you know, again, you know, we talked about some of the inefficiencies of, of the approach the federal government's taken. However, that high level, you know, widespread uh, focus. Right. So within verticals, right, when you look at, you know, whether it's in the banking vertical, um, you know, whether it's in the medical vertical, um, trying to take something and make it become, you know, the de facto standard, right? And, you know, hey, if you're not doing this, right, you, you know, you're, you're seriously lagging. And, you know, and in the private sector, right, you've got competition. So I can see, you know, if, if competition starts going, hey, well, we do this and they don't. My competitors don't do this, but I'm doing this. I've adopted zero trust. I've adopted these security practices. I'm protecting your information. My competitors aren't protecting information, right? I think that adoption of a standard happens faster in the private sector because of the fact that you're, you know, competing for dollars. Anything you can use as a differentiator is key, right? So I can imagine a private sector company going, hey, the president thought something was so important that he issued this mandate to the government. We're already doing that, right? Look, look how look how good we are, right? You know, so within different verticals, I could easily see some of these things becoming kind of de facto standards. It's no different than when when they start trying to compete with each other on, you know, you know, hey, what what benefits do we offer? What capabilities do we offer? I think that that's critical in if you can get that security mindset to say, hey. This is another one of those things that we should be comparing ourselves against each other that can become that thing that I can point to and say, I do this, you don't. So I would encourage right in the private sector, think about some of these things and go, how can I use it to my advantage? But you better be doing it because the last thing you want to do is pretend like you're doing it and then you know have something happen and have to explain to your customer base why you weren't doing it. So it's essentially like almost using zero trust or security as a differentiator and as a competitive sort of differentiator between you and your competition, right? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, right? Because you, you look, right, when a private company, and this is, and I think you're going to start slowly see, you're seeing this change. When a private company gets breached, what happens, right? There's a, you know, it's a big splash in the news. Then they go, okay, you know, usually the, the answer is, oh, we're going to pay for free credit monitoring for you for a year. In the worst case, you know, maybe somebody files a, a class action lawsuit and you get the letter in the mail and then you end up getting, you know, a buck 50, you know, as part of the settlement. But I think that you're starting to see companies are starting to really take hits now when these things happen, right? Because, you know, if suddenly as a customer, you start feeling like, you know, hey, I can't trust company X with my credit card information. What are you going to do? You're going to stop shopping there. And I think that as the populace becomes more and more savvy about this stuff. And I think there's we're reaching this tipping point where people are tired of hearing, oh, it happened again, and it just happens, right? I really think the populace is getting tired of that, and they're going to start holding people accountable. And it may be just be with their feet and their, and their checkbooks, right? That, 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 that you know, they're going to take their dollars somewhere else because they're tired of hearing about, oh, here we go again. My stuff got compromised again. And that's a really interesting point right at the end there because I think there's the general public now has a much better basic understanding of security breaches, right? They have a much better basic understanding of a ransomware attack. So it's not that organizations can kind of just, just sort of dust it off under the carpet and, and forget about it, right? It's when it happens, people are very have very much like a, oh my God, not yet again, right? Am I safe there type reaction now? 
Absolutely. I know, I know things have changed when I get a phone call from my 70 plus year old mother who says, mm-hmm. Hey, this happened at this company, right? I'm pretty upset about this. And my response is take your money somewhere else. Right. And she says, oh, that's probably a good idea. Right. So, you know, you know, it's when, when you're to the point where customers are asking those types of questions, um, I really think that we have crossed a crossed a, a threshold of and I don't know that we'll go back. Right. I think people are really just starting to get tired of this and companies are having to start taking this more and more seriously because some of these breaches, they've gone past the their embarrassing breaches, but they're starting to become really financially impacting breaches because customers are starting to lose confidence in companies. Uh, absolutely. And it's but but also I think the the concerning thing is that when you unpack the details of of what caused those breaches, the root causes are typically always the same. It, it's it's kind of like when we're often not learning. Right. And I think that's the frustration. Yeah, that is definitely the frustration. And, you know, um, I you know, I can think of the, the last time there was something that again, I'll go back to my mother. We were talking about something that had happened with a company that that she was uh, doing business with, and she had enough understanding of the problem to say to me, right, my understanding was somebody had a weak administrator password. How dumb is that? And that was coming from my mother. Uh, you know, so <laughs> so if it's gotten to the level, if it's got to the level of my mother, who is the most un-IT savvy person you want to meet, can say something like that and ask a question like that, something has shifted in the environment. I mean, it looks like she should be given a job in cybersecurity, right? <laughs> she, she'd have the skill, she'd have the awareness for it. So just coming back to sort of zero trust adoption, right? Very quickly, do you see a difference in approach between how the private sector is going to adopt zero trust and how the public sector is going to adopt zero trust? So first of all, I think that the private sector is already much further down the path of zero trust than the public sector is. You can just see that with with different entities and some of the things that they've deployed and implemented, the government is just now starting to talk about, right? So I think they're already further down. And I think that they've got a couple of different things, right? So we talked about this competition thing, right? So pick any vertical you want, and there's multiple companies in that vertical that if I as a customer feel like you're not doing something safely, I will go somewhere else. But now let's let's compare that to the public sector. There's only one Social Security Administration. There's only one IRS. There's only one VA, right? I can't take my money and go somewhere else because the services I'm being provided, there is only one of those, right? So so there's there's not as much driving incentive in the public sector as there is in the private sector because the customer base is stuck, right? They don't they don't have, there's no competition in government. There's nowhere else to go. Right, so they don't necessarily have the same things hanging over their head on the uh, on the government side as they do on the on the in the private sector, because in the government sector, you know your your customer base isn't going anywhere, whereas in the private sector, right, you have to be flexible and you have to be adaptive because you don't want to lose your customers, right, and it's revenue based and you can't afford to lose customers. So that's why I think that's one of the other reasons why I think things take a little bit longer in in the public in the in the government is because of that, you know, the fact that there is no competition, there's nowhere else for your customers to go. Yeah, yeah, awesome. No, I, I, that's such a great, great sort of observation, sort of the driving factor behind why the the private sector is going to take this probably, it's not about taking it more seriously, but it's actually going to do, going to be more aggressive in, in doing something about it. So kind of just to sort of wrap up on this point, like what does the future of Zero Trust look like from your perspective? So I think that 
the future of zero trust is going to be about, again, going back to this whole assumed breach, right? I think trying to get things down to the smallest piece possible, right? You know, you talk about securing data at the, at the data element level. You talk about securing applications at the application level and at the individual piece, you know, we get into micro segmentation of the individual pieces of an application, right? Trying to draw that that ring of defense as small and as close to the source as possible, as opposed to the traditional, let's just draw big circles and, and try to prevent anybody from getting through the big circle, right? And doing it in such a way that it's layered so that, you know, it really makes it difficult for adversaries to get in. And then the last piece is, is I think as, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and those types of things really start to, to get themselves uh, more ingrained in the security world and having those things be adaptive and not have to have, you know, as, as much involvement, you know, human interaction. I think that that's going to be critical in really trying to isolate things at a much faster pace than they're able to be isolated now. And also just deployed, right? Just, it's just set up in the beginning, Right just looking at how do we deploy these tools in the first place. If you got to rely on people to do all that work, then by def definition, it's going to take a while going back to the limited resources. But as more and more things become automated, more and more things become, you know, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, not just with the implementation, but the deployment of the, of the capability right up front, I really have a lot of high confidence that security's got nowhere to go but up, right? <laughs> it's always it's always an uphill battle, right? So it's got nowhere to go but up. And I think that there's a lot of room for growth and improvement uh, when it comes to the deployment of zero trust. And I think as technology adapts, it's just going to allow security to, to adapt faster. So I, I think like what you're saying here is, is that you're kind of, you're optimistic. You're one of those, you're one of those people who believe that at like going forward, zero trust, and particularly if I think back to the original formulation of it, and those rings that are around sort of continuous monitoring and automation orchestration, sort of looking forward, we will end up with sort of zero trust architectures, zero trust ecosystems, where you do have that sort of secure by design, a continuous feedback loop where data is coming in from your sensors, right? that your, your policy engine, et cetera, is processing to then adapt that security policy to maintain that least privileged state. Um, and, and that is something that you see as being realistic in sort of the future, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's well within, and you're already seeing a little bit of that, right? You see, you see some of that is already in play today. Um, I just think that that's going to become more the norm. This security is going to be rapidly adaptive, right? We're going to get out of the world of waiting for, hey, what's the latest signature update? What's the latest, you know, update that's coming in? We're going to get better and better at handling zero day exploits and taking care of, you know, unique situations with our users, I really believe that technology is going to lead us there. So just moving off Zero Trust for a, for a brief few minutes, outside Zero Trust, what else do you love about cybersecurity, right? What are the trends that, that you follow? There's a couple of different things, right? Number one is I just love the ongoing, constant, never-ending challenge, right? I just love the fact that some people would hate it, right? The fact that there's no finish line, there's no end, I'm the opposite, right? I love the fact that it's constantly challenging. I love the fact that it's going to continuously give you something to do, right? Every morning you wake up, you've got, you've got something to, to focus on, and you know that there's there's a new challenge, you know, right around the, the corner. So I love to play chess, right? Um, chess is about strategies. Chess is about trying to outthink your opponent, right? Trying to look multiple moves ahead. And that's where IT security, you know, should be if it isn't for, for you know, someone is the fact that it needs to be about anticipation. It needs to be about thinking ahead. And I'm really excited to see 
I'm worried and excited at the same time to see what advances and things like when you, you know, just throw out, you know, the increases in capabilities of, of artificial intelligence. And then you start, you know, more and more people are talking about quantum computing, right? Quantum computing, you know, could potentially be the greatest boon to IT security ever, or it could also be the greatest threat to IT security ever, right? Um, and I think that uncertainty is kind of fun, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weirdo when it comes to that. So, um, kind of to just just uh, it's always it's always good, right? To take like for for the for the CISOs and the CIOs who are kind of listening avidly to this, right? They all want to hear like what is your sort of one nugget of wisdom. So for them, top of mind is cyber resilience these days. And if you could give one bit of advice to your sort of to your fellow CIOs and CISOs, right, and how to build and optimize cyber resilience, what would that be? Yeah, so I would say that um, looping back to something we talked about earlier is if you are not assuming breach, you must be assuming breach. If you are still in the in the camp of I'm going to stop the breach, your camp is getting smaller and it's outdated. You must be in the camp of assume breach. And then you need to be looking internally at your enterprises and asking yourself, how do I mitigate the impact of that breach? How do I try to do the best I can to keep services running for my customers and not be the person that says, oh, I'm going to hit the big red button and take the entire network offline? That was one thing I used to fight against uh, some of my less advanced uh, folks that worked for me uh, when I was a CIO in the beginning, when they'd say, oh, we need to take everything offline. No, we're not taking everything offline, right? We can't do that. We're in the business of providing service, right? So then with that approach, right, you have to implement things internally in your network. And, you know, obviously that, you know, I'm a big believer in segmentation and micro segmentation, that you have to have things internally in your network that allow you to isolate the impact, right, down to the smallest uh, footprint possible, so that the rest of your enterprise can, t- can continue to function and you don't have to shut everything down just because of, a, you, know, ma- you know, malware, ransomware, something may take a, uh, you know, may take a small foothold, but you want to stop it as close to the source of, of origination as possible and as quickly as possible so that you can continue operations and then just focus on a very small problem and not have to focus on a larger problem because you allowed it to spread out of control. Yeah. I think I think the I think so I I love how you phrased that right because I think it's the key message to security prof- professionals is, ladies and gentlemen, there are three letters in the AIC triad, um, and the A stands for availability. It's just as important as integrity and confidentiality. Well, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on the uh, on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Thank you, and um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Segment. For even more information and Zero Trust resources, check out our website at alumio.com. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Alumio. And if you like today's conversation, you can find our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Raghunanda Kumara, and we'll be back soon.